You're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled Peak Visor, a mountaineering tool useful for geolocations. With us this week was Sophie Tedling, a Bellingcat tech fellow and global authentication project member. Sophie shared a fantastic presentation on the benefits and disadvantages of Peak Visor for open source research. She also shared her experience of growth and experimentation in the open source research community, as she talked about her time working with the Global Authentication Project and with Bellingcat staff and Discord members. All the links mentioned are in the description of this podcast. The talk was hosted by Charlotte Marr on Thursday, the 14th of September in the Bellingcat Discord server. Welcome, everybody. Uh, today, we have Bellingcat Tech Fellow Sophie Tedley with us. Sophie is a great example of how you can get stuck into open source research through Bellingcat's volunteer projects. She's an active member of the Global Authentication Project. For those new to Bellingcat, the Global Authentication Project is a vetted community of open source researchers assisting in Bellingcat research through structured tasks and feedback. The Global Authentication Teams Project team's aim is to authenticate events taking place around the world and fill in the gaps of knowledge that exist, particularly in situations where there are vast quantities of data. Sophie will be speaking a little more about her experience of that project, but is here to particularly focus on her latest resource guide as a Bellingcat Tech Fellow on the applications of the mountaineering tool PeakVisor for open source researchers. Please put all questions in the chat as she talks, as I mentioned before, and thank you so much for joining us today, Sophie. Um, you can now you. please take the stage and I will be quiet. I've got three perspectives on Peak Pfizer. Obviously, with its title, everyone's going to think it's to do with mountains. Yes, it is. It works very well in dramatic terrains of all kinds. Um, but you don't just need a mountain problem to use Peak Pfizer. So perspective number one is just another tool in the toolbox, talking about Peak Visor as something that um, you can use, you've got a choice. What does it do? What can it offer? The second perspective is as a tool which solved a particular geolocation uh, in an article that's published on the Bellingcat website, how it was used, and also the story of how different teams within Bellingcat supported me to do that work and how an article comes together and how the editorial process can actually make you better, can make you rethink what you're doing about a geolocation. The third perspective is probably the most unusual one, which is PeakVisor as a community-developed, customized open source tool. So it isn't actually open source code. It is developed by a commercial company. But the story of how they came to help appreciate the open source community and to develop for the open source community where they can is, is I think, quite an interesting one. And it's developed into a project, a collaborative one, where anyone who's an open source researcher who's using PeakVisor can suggest upgrades and extensions, and those are likely to get delivered at some point. And that's, that's quite new. So starting with Balincat's uh, online toolbox, we can look at that. It's out there. It's at bit.ly, bcat tools. And we can go there and look at really become completely swamped in all the different options open to us. 
and we could spend our lives trying to learn all this stuff. Peakvisor was already in the Bellingcat toolbox when I joined uh, Gap. So why do we want to learn another tool? First of all, you look around for the stuff you already know. Can it solve the problem you've got? Every new tool costs you time to learn. There has to be a payback. So you're going to look for alternatives. It needs to do something that the competition doesn't. So even if that's just more accurately or faster, it has to do something that you're going to put the time in for. So firstly, just let's think about what kind of a tool this is. It belongs to, I think, a class of tools, which is to do with geolocation. And the geolocation problem is a bit weird. You've got a bit of open source imagery, a video or, or a photo, and you want to know where it is on the map. Why can't you just look at the map? It's pretty simple. Why can't you look at a map and just come up with the coordinates? Well, it's because the maps are from the sky, satellite imagery. They're a, a 2D view. And what you're looking at in your photo is, is a 3D ground level thing usually. So you need something to link you and your imagery through to that map. And that's what this class of tools does. And of course, the most famous one is um, the Google Earth Suite, which I think most people have had a go at, at open source research who've done any geolocations will be familiar with at some level. I'm very grateful to Giancarlo that every time I thought I'd reached the limits of Google Earth, Giancarlo showed me I hadn't and there was something else to learn. So that tool's been going for years and it's got a huge user base. How could anything offer something further than that, particularly in the case of Peakvisor, something which is actually relatively new, developed by a lovely, crazy band of enthusiastic mountaineers and, and hikers? Uh, based in Italy, how could that have anything new to offer? And that's really what I'm going to try to, to get over today. So this class of tools matches 3D surface models that it renders to 2D maps. That's all it does. And you are the person who has to look at the rendered image, the 3D image, and say whether it matches your photo or not. And that's really where we are. So if you look at the article on the Bellingcat website, you'll be able to see that there's a remarkable similarity between the image that Peakvisor rendered of this mountainside we were looking for and the actual photograph. And the solutions to all of these problems are the tool makes the link between 2D and 3D, and you match the 3D to your imagery. That's what it's all about. So we're in competition with anything new starting is in competition with the Google suite. Google Earth Pro, the thing that I'd never heard of that I had to download because Bellingcat was training me and I had to, that was the only thing you had to do up front was to download this enormous thing. It obviously wasn't good enough to use the one online. You had to download it to get the full functionality. And of course, that has the amazing advantage of the, the images over time. It's got a lot of different functions. Google Earth Web, the beta version's out. That's a collaborative working tool that we're using on the Tajikistan project that we're doing. 
the Tajikistan's the place where this image was taken uh, in the geolocation on the website. And then Google Maps, which everybody knows about, and it doesn't exactly have a ground level view like Google Earth, uh, but it has a street map view, which is a very clever set of stitched together photos. So horses for courses, we know about all of those. If I was trying to say to you where and when to use Peak Visor, I'd probably go through about five things that are particularly good, new, faster, more accurate. And the first one would be the quality of the data. All of these uh, systems grab their data from somewhere. Satellite imagery, particularly the LIDAR satellites that are like blind fingers or a bat squeak feeling the surface of the Earth and mapping that. But there's also some local stuff that we don't hear about so much. For example, at the end of the Soviet era, a lot of very detailed military maps were sold off uh, of all the, the regions around the old Soviet Union. And those still contain a huge amount of extra data that um, others don't have. So it's a matter of blending the old and the new, and the sewing together bit is tremendously important with your data. So PeakVisor can claim mostly 30-meter accuracy globally. Obviously, they're going to be stronger in places where a lot of their customers are skiing and hiking, but they're pretty good everywhere. And if you look at the photography in the article, you'll be able to see, oh, by the way, I should tell you, Peakvisor has, Peak has an API, which anyone can use, so that's worth knowing as well. But looking at the article on the Bellingcat website, you can actually see the difference between the way that Google Earth has tried to match the photograph we're interested in and the way that Peakvisor has done it. And it's probably quite convincing because it's all those little details, not the general shape, in a, a place where there's loads of mountains, they're all similar. What you need are those little extra details, the little pointy bits, the strange things that catch the eye and lodge in the brain that make you, when you're doing a big search, think, hang on a minute and go back. And that's exactly what happened to me uh, when I was doing this work. So Peakvisor does have a very obvious claim in that you can pick certain geolocations and say the amount of detail here was the difference between me recognizing this and not recognizing this. And part of that comes from the fact that Google Earth smooths surfaces. It does that because it actually had fantastic uh, functionality to be able to move your viewpoint in real time, looking at a 3D image. That's very hard to do. And Google Earth did that first. And when I started to use PeakVisor, it was more like playing battleships. You chose a location, you put in your coordinates, it cranked a bit and generated a 3D image. And if that matched, that was great. But if it didn't, you had to go away again, choose another place, crank again. It was a very slow process. Whereas Google Earth was like a Ferrari and you can wander around this virtual terrain. But if the terrain's too smooth to recognize, maybe that's not quite what you need. So I'm looking at the Google Earth one and thinking, 
might be here, might be not, not sure when I compare it with a photo. And I'm looking at all the little jagged edges and recognizable things on the very sharp peak visor one and thinking, I know where I am. The second thing that peak visor does that's very good, and this isn't unique, I have uh, Miguel to thank for this from the tech team at Bellingcat, is contour lines. So knowing not just what the place looks like in terms of latitude and longitude, but also knowing the altitude or elevation measure, knowing how high up you are or low down you are, is really helpful in geolocation. And Peak Visor gives you a separate little map that you can blow up big, but it is the contour line map. So that's your 2D map on one side in one window. And in the other window, you have the 3D rendered panorama. These contours are useful sometimes for telling exactly where you are, but often for telling exactly where you aren't. If you want to eliminate something, looking at the lines of sight is tremendously important. If you're looking at a photo and thinking, well, should I be able to see that giant mountain or not? Then Peak Visor can tell you, no, there's, there's something in the way, or yes, you've got a clear view. Lines of sight are tremendously important. And these contours can tell you very quickly. So I have used this in uh, Ukraine, where I wanted to know whether I should be able to see a particular vantage point and a particular landmark from a certain location. And Peak Visor doesn't work brilliantly in the cities at all in terms of showing you buildings. It doesn't do that. It only shows you things like the slack heaps around um, Azovstal or something like that. But it does help you know whether there's a line of sight. So I hope by the end of this, I'll be able to persuade you that it's not just mountains. It is actually um, a little bit more than that. Another way it can really help is determining distance. This is something that Google Earth gives you a ruler, but it takes you quite a long time. And the ruler is for use in a different way from Peak Visors. Peak Visor allows you to point to anything in the 3D panorama and say, how far away is that? And that's amazing because when you look out of a window, unless you've got something you can use to scale, like a building or a tree, you can't tell whether things are, are small or far away or large or close by. And Peak Visor will just straighten you out on that. So it's tremendously useful in that sense. And I've got a little um, video that I can tell you about, which is on the Peak Visor for OSINV um, Twitter feed. So if you want to find any little videos, they're just very short because they're tweets, basically. There is a video about that that's extremely helpful. But Peak Visor will just say to you, it's such and such distance away. And that's a, a fantastic thing to find out. It could save you a great deal of time, and it can certainly help you work out where you are. Peak Visor also does something that a tool that you may have heard of, which is called SunCalc, does. There's a specialist in Ballincat called Nick Waters, who's published quite a bit about not just geolocation, but chronolocation using some of the really old principles from uh, maritime navigation to use the sun and possibly the moon, although it's not often as visible, to work out where you are and what time it is. 
and peak visor draws you patterns in the sky. It draws you the arc of the sun and it draws you the arc of the moon, which is purple. They can be confusing if you haven't seen them before, but they in fact are possible to use to work out what the time is or where you are. It's one of those things where you have a certain number of variables and if you've got three of them, you can work out the fourth. The point of that is that you're given some cross wires that you can switch on with control P and you can point them anywhere with great accuracy. So if you point them at the sun, you'll be able to work out exactly the angle of the sun and the direction of the sun. So all of this stuff is uh, great fun. If you're standing there looking up at the sun and you have a shadow, you can also work out uh, the angle of the shadow and therefore where the sun is. And these things, there's a whole separate um, talk on this and uh, an article by Nick Waters, which will demonstrate it very well. The thing that most people know about Peak Biser is the photo fitting. They've probably seen something about taking the image that's the open source stuff and matching it to a silhouette drawn by Peak Visor. And that's something that um, is extremely powerful. So let me see if I can find us a, uh, a video which would also be on um, the Peak Visor for OSINV Twitter feed which actually shows that happening. If you go look at that, you actually see the silhouette. We can change its color. It's in red. And you can see it being manipulated over, we chose the Matterhorn, you know, the one that's on the Toblerone bar. So manipulated over there, lots of different parameters to change until you feel that you've got a very good match. Now, of course, be careful. It's a lovely tool. You feel very clever when you think it's matched. But if you're matching something that's close to a straight line, don't ask yourself, does this match very well? Ask yourself, could I match this to any other photograph? Because it hasn't got much detail. The ones to believe in are the ones that fit like a key in a lock, where there's a huge number of what you might call points of inflection, changes of direction of the line. If it's a very wiggly line, then that's a really good idea. That probably fits very well. But those five points are probably the, the main ones that distinguish Peak Visor and make you think you might want to use it. So if I move on now to the idea of, of Peak Visor solving a problem and refer to the article called More Than Mountaineering, which is the point I'm trying to make, I guess, in one sense then that started with some images that were given to me as part of uh, GAP, the Global Authentication Program that I had volunteered for. And a good friend and colleague in GAP, Foxtrot, had already tried to geolocate these. And we weren't sure whether it was right or not. And then some more information appeared. So I got hold of Foxtrot and said, we've got a smaller search pace now. Do you want to collaborate on this? And the two of us uh, took this with support from uh, Hannah Bagdazar, who has been the most amazing driver for the GAP project and shown such incredible commitment. 
And she and I, Ganesh, who's the staff researcher who focuses on this area, helped us look at the context, the government crackdown that led to this very sad picture of some people at a burial. And the weird thing about it is they're up a mountain. This is May 2022. And what we can see are some bodies waiting to be buried in shrouds in the Muslim tradition, the Ismaili Muslim tradition. And a lot of people, they all look like men. It's obviously cold. And they're up a mountain. And there's some very distinctive shapes of the skyline. And they're the things that actually helped us geolocate this. But it also raised the question, we know there's been a government crackdown on the people of this region, uh, either if you believe the government, they're terrorists, or if you believe the people are protesting about uh, various injustices. But one way or another, why are you burying people in the mountains? So this was fascinating to us. And the internet had been cut as part of the government crackdown. So these didn't appear at the time, they appeared later. And it looked like very high up. We know in the region that these people had perfectly usable uh, cemeteries in their villages. And various ideas came out. But one of them that we're researching now is that legislation has been passed now in 2023 that says that uh, terrorists or anyone killed in a terrorist, an anti-terrorist attack, which is not the same as terrorists, the government will take care of their burial, their family cannot attend, and their family will never be told where the graves are. So maybe that's the background to this. We're not sure. Peak Visor was the obvious choice. And we also used Google Earth. Never think that you just use one tool. So we did use Google Earth to look at the terrain. And we didn't use Planet because people in um, Gap, the volunteers don't have access, but the staff do. And so we were able to make use of that facility. Um, we minimized the search space as far as we could to work out what regions we could ignore. And I try to follow all the time the god of uh, geolocation, Carlos Gonzalez, who naturally also works for Bellingcat, to say that you need a strategy. Don't just flail around in the search space. Have a strategy. I must confess that I have written a very good strategy into this article. I'm not sure now, looking back, how much I flailed around to start with and how much is, this is written retrospectively. But suffice to say, we narrowed the area down because it was on a slope, because the direction it was facing, because uh, the people had climbed up there, um, because we had information about uh, what the nearby village was. So we ended up with a smaller space. We knew we should be looking up the hill, and we knew we were looking for certain features. So we developed this plan for checking out uh, all of the different viewpoints to match the photo. And I was doing something akin to hopping around like a frog. Hop, swivel, look around, check the panorama. Hop somewhere else, swivel, check around, look the panorama. However much uh, sophistication and support tools we have, there is a fair amount of slog in uh, finding geolocations if you're not very, very lucky. So we eventually thought that we had found a geolocation. We spotted certain features that we thought were so 
original and recognizable. The top of the mountain looked like a teapot lid. There was something I used to call the snaggletooth rock because it's such a weird face, like bat's ears or something, the particular slope. And we could find that we actually could see the match in Peak Visor, not in Google Earth, in Peak Visor. And therefore, another thing that Peak Visor does that's helpful is when it shows where you are on the 2D map, it shows you what direction you're looking. It gives you a little arrow. That's massively helpful. You see straight away. So we had a thought where we were, and we submitted this for approval because that's what happens in the gap. And you wait for your homework to be marked. And it's a great feeling, and you're full of trepidation. And there was a sort of silence for a while. And then there was a bit of, well, we're, we're not sure. We're, we're just checking it out. And at the time, I uh, related this to Foxtrot, and she sent me this lovely encouraging message. She said, curse these mountains. Curse these mountains. We've got it wrong. But what was actually happening beside the scenes was um, they were tasking a satellite to look at the area that we'd suggested to see if there was anything else that corrob could corroborate the idea. And it was a brilliant day when Giancarlo actually brought the planet imagery onto Discord to show me. He said, yeah, we think it's right. And that was a fantastic feeling. And he tried to show me planet where there's a slider between two satellite images. What you could see was um, a very small area of disturbed Earth. And it was there one time. And then later on, it wasn't. And the dates matched. So the idea, the theory was that there was some disturbed earth and that was all those people in the photo trogging their way up to this uh, burial site. My, I don't know about you, um, how good your screens are. I actually was nodding wildly to Giancarlo, but I could, my screen wasn't very good. So I could just, I think, make something out. And there's nothing worse in geolocation than just thinking you make something out because you so want it to be right. And that's the most dangerous thing for you because the worst thing that we can do ever is put something inaccurate in Bellingcat's name. And that's something that worries me enormously every time I do a geolocation is that it's so much, it's like cricket, you know, it's so much worse to, to get it wrong. So I took this work, I was fascinated by um, Peak Pfizer. And I applied for a Bellingcat Technical Fellowship. And the deliverables were an article. So this is the article that's now on the website. And some webinars, which are yet to come at the end of October. And something that helped me a lot was working with the editors at Bellingcat, Max and Owen, to try to write this up in a way that was straightforward, easy to understand, didn't make any mistakes got things over in the right way. And Max challenged me. And I thought, he said, well, how can we be sure? What if, what if the ground goes like that at certain times of the season? What if something else did it? And for a minute, I thought, well, that's not fair. Um, Giancarlo says it's right. But it was brilliant because it made me think, I do think this is the right place, but how else can I prove it? And it led to the pretty obvious moment, put a slightly different location. It's about 170 meters away, where I suggested that it's about 170 meters to this kicked earth. That's a very small margin of error in one sense, as long as you're not looking at which side of a 
a border, a county border, a country border, a missile lands, because you could start a war or not. But accuracy is a very important part of this. So if I was right, I was still 170 meters out. So we plugged in the coordinates from the satellite imagery into peak visor. And it should have come up with a better, even better photo fit. And it did. So Max was happy. I was happy. And the editorial process actually helped me do a better job. So that was very useful. The strangest thing about this whole exercise was that by the end of it, Peak Visor wasn't the same tool. It had gone on for long enough that at the end, Peak Visor had additional functionality that allowed me to do even more testing of those two sites. And that's for the, for the next part of uh, what I'm going to say, which is just the ending up bit about the Popsy project and developing Peak Visor between us. So that whole experience was a massive education. And it helped me to deal with the fact that somebody from Peak Visor because I'd signed up, did what all of these people do, which is to write and say, hello, how are you using PeakVisor? And they do it to everyone. And they expect you to say, I use the smartphone version of PeakVisor. I've paid for a license and I go mountaineering. And here's a picture of me in a bobble hat at the top of um, the Matterhorn. And we'll all, and everybody saves those and they get a lovely collection of where everyone's been. And I wrote back and said, I'm using it for open source research. And they wrote back and said, what's open source research? So I tried to explain, but then I thought the best thing to do was to let Elliot Higgins explain. So I mailed them the What is Bellingcat book in very neat Mount Fuji wrapping paper as a present and said, this is what we're doing. This is why. It's great to use the web version of your software. I know you don't develop it much. I know you haven't looked at it for a while, but it's doing fantastic things for us. And they wrote back and said, what do you need? And I thought, well, hey, I was slightly prepared for this. And I thought, well, don't push your luck. So I said, can you change the color of the um, silhouettes in the photo fit so that we can have a good contrast? Because if you have a black line across the top of your black mountain, it looks like a brilliant photo fit, but that's because you can't see it. And within, I think, a few days came back, not just red, but this whole chance, if you now use shift C, you can go through a rainbow of colors so that you'll always be able to check out uh, exactly what the fit's like. So the amazing thing after that was that they were prepared with as much spare time as they had as a commercial company to help the open source community. And this is an unusual sort of hybrid model between building your own stuff and making it open source code and having a collaboration with uh, probably a smaller company, I think Google would have kicked me downstairs, to try to gather requirements and then work together on them. So I do quite a lot of work specifying the requirements and I do quite a lot of work doing the testing. But the Popsy project is for all of us. And there's a big delivery list so far. So the colors, readouts, the parameters, so you know where you are in um, photo fit mode. The biggest one was a huge thing for them to do, 
they actually upgraded so that you can now move your whole viewpoint in 3D mode. So it's caught up with Google. And there's a trade-off there. When you move, it looks a bit like in the old Star Trek where they enter warp drive. The page goes a bit blurry and then it comes into focus again. But what you get is very sharp, sharp enough to do a great geolocation. Google Earth, you've always been able to do it, but you're moving in a synthetically smooth virtual world. So that's a, a really step, big step forward for PeakVisor as an open source tool. You have the sun and moon trails, which means that it's incorporating much of the functionality of sun calc into one tool. And it's moving forward all the time. So the point of the Twitter feed or X feed, if you are of that event, is that people, anybody using PeakVisor can actually write and say, look, I think we need this, or can you tweak that? And we will deliver that as far as we can. We're also putting out little bytes of um, video just to show people what's going on. So if you send something in, in time, you'll get something back that says, look, this is what we've done. So I think the most important thing about PeakVisor is probably this development and also the fact that it's quite unusual. PeakVisor, in a sense, if we're the open source investigation community, PeakVisor is now our tool and, and that's a good feeling. Thanks, Charlie. Thank you so much, Sophie, for that amazing talk. Everybody in the comments, by the way, is saying what an excellent speaker you are um, and how they're struggling to come up with questions because you prepare so well. So uh, well done on that. It was a fantastic talk. Um, I think just quickly uh, before uh, we jump into questions, um, I think it's just worth saying uh, in terms of the podcast, in terms of everyone who's listening now, um, just for transparency reasons, kind of what is your involvement with PeakVisor going forwards? Um, how do you kind of, uh, how, what's your kind of involvement with them? Are you running the PeakVisor uh, for OSINT Twitter page? Are you being paid by PeakVisor? Um, Sadly not, no, but that's not the point. Um, it has to be something which is genuinely open source investigation. So if I'm representing the community, then I have to interpret what the open source community want, um, not to be PeakVisor marketing. And the odd thing is that for PeakVisor, um, they're making no money out of this. And they make money out of people who do ski trails. So someone doing a ski trail goes off piste in some way. I, I'm not a skier. I'm a tobogganer, but I'm not a skier. So I'm not good at this. But they go off and, and they need PeakVisor to help them find the right snow or something. And that's great because PeakVisor actually now developing something which gives you a, a real-time rendition of going along this particular trail they've outlined. We don't give a hoot about that, but it's reusable for open source investigation. For example, the video from Stara Krimska graveyard in uh, Mariupol where you're on a, on a Jeep going around looking at all the graves. And you get a moving video, and that's even harder to match. So sometimes the commercial and the um, open source stuff can benefit one another. But no, it would uh, completely compromise the work if I had anything to do with um, Peak Visor commercially.
So I have something to do with volunteer work for Bellingcat and tech fellow for Bellingcat. And I don't actually have anything except a, a friendship with Peakvisor. I think it's amazing um, how clear and how um, excited they were by kind of the prospect of open source researchers using their tool. Um, what are some of the limitations or some of the uh, issues with Peakvisor that you found while working with it? Is, is there any limitations to this particular tool? You mentioned that it's not great at uh, buildings work. Is there anything else that kind of comes to mind? I think the thing that you have to remember is... Peakvisor is a work in progress. It's almost done by these guys as a hobby. Um, you could go any particular day and Tristan has, and bits of it are being um, tested in live. So Peakvisor is a really exciting ride. And it also could pop up tomorrow with something totally brilliant that you didn't see yesterday. My job really is to tell everybody it's happened because Peakvisor might not even promote it much. They're trying to talk to people who go skiing. They're not trying to confuse those skiing people with open source investigation. But yeah, Peakvisor is um, a work in progress, but then it's also exciting because it goes so fast. So it's sort of the opposite of Google Earth, which moves very slowly and has developed over years and is almost like tectonic plates um, and has all these layers of design that you could see are quite old, but legacy, and you have to go with them. Whereas Peakvisor, um, yeah, it can be a bit scary. It's like a bucking Bronco. Uh, Timothy asks, can you show the 2D view? I've been finding it difficult to find a tool that shows elevation, but also allows to import KMZ files. They probably don't have that yet. Um, I think they do, actually. I think they do because the rich people want to send their specific uh, ski runs, but it's not built into this one. And that's sometimes annoying. So we've got two versions of Peakvisor, the commercial one on smartphones, which is totally different from uh, the, the web version, which is now being developed for us. So the 2D stuff effectively is in the small window, which you can then um, blow up and you have to zoom back in again. But you can see uh, better contour lines than Google Earth Maps, I think, a lot better. Those come into focus for a while and then disappear. And it, it's quite hard as you zoom in and out to, to keep them consistent. And you get a readout of elevation here at altitude, actually in the, the URL that you're looking at. So Peakvisor has lots of things that will tell you uh, what's going on, what the parameters of your view are. But the main one you can always go back to is it's written into the URL. There are seven different values that define each viewpoint, each view. So your panorama can be described by seven values. They're to do with uh, latitude, longitude, altitude, obviously, but then also the angle at which you're rotated um, in, in three dimensions. There's also the horizontal field of view of your lens. So that's quite complicated. But altitude, you can read off and um, you can read these contour lines very clearly if you blow up the 2D map. So that's my best guess. If you also, if you uh, hone in on something in the 3D, it will come back to you with uh, some of those values also. 
the KMZ thing was interesting to me. I was trying to work out why didn't you get altitude readings very easily uh, in Google Earth Pro? And the guy said to me, well, of course, you get this in, in Google Earth Maps. But it seems just like an obvious missing thing in something with so much detail. And my word, you can do such incredible things in Google Earth Pro. But you will find online lots and lots of videos and instructions for how to get KMZ files in and out of, of Google Earth Pro because there's that gap. So, yes, I think it's there. It's in the smartphone version. And if we want Timothy to put that in as a request, then if it's in the smartphone version, it's a heck of a lot easier for them to do than it is for them to uh, do it from scratch. So if we put that together and put it onto the uh, Twitter channel, then I think that's a good one to work with. <laughs> Timothy says, yes, I want. Um, it's just going, going on, right. <laughs> just going on to that. Right. If, if anyone's listening to the podcast, could you just quickly go over exactly how, if they do find something, a feature that they want in Peakvisor, how they might kind of suggest that? You um, go to the Twitter feed at, at PV4OSIN, P-V-F-O-R-O-S-I-N-V, and you post it. There's also at the end of the article on uh, the Bellingcat website, there's a form that you can fill in right at the end to say if there's something you want. Fill in this form. But you can also uh, contact me if you're on Discord. Uh, I'm slang on Discord and I will uh, come back to you. Um, if you have any questions for Sophie, please put them in the chat. We've got about 15 minutes left. Um, so we've spoken about Peakvisor, and you mentioned in passing that some of the ideas for the resource guide that you wrote on this came from your work with GAP. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with the Global Authentication Project? Yeah, I was living through um, some sad years because I was doing care at home and so my tech career had to take a strange direction and the person I was looking after said to me here here's the newspaper there's an article in this you really need to read I know you'd really be interested in it and it said there's this book called um, We Are Bellingcat and I read the whole article and I thought, yep, right, wow, I get that. That makes sense. Got the message. I'll get the book. So I sent for the book. And I read the book in one sitting. And I thought, yep, wow, right, I get that. Um, here I come. So I was running a small uh, group of volunteers, a bit like a baby gap. Um, and it wasn't specifically geolocation, but I thought we might be able to help with geolocation. So we had a budget. It wasn't very big. And COVID did not do me a lot of favors as a carer, but it did do me a lot of favors with the price of Bellingcat training. So we took our entire budget. And because the training was no longer in Amsterdam in person, it was online. We blew our entire budget on Bellingcat training on Zoom. 
And I then nearly had a heart attack wondering about whether my tech would work and how awful it would be, you know, to pay for this thing and not be able to get on. And I went through uh, Balling Cut training. So the next step is to do um, volunteer work. So I filled in the form. But of course, I had nothing going for me at all. I was new to open source research. As open source research, sometimes you do things in a tech career that you look back and think, mm, yeah, maybe that was open source research, but not really, not as a discipline. So I thought, right, I'm going to get stuck in. And I filled in the form and nobody answered. And then once in a while, I filled it in again and nobody answered. And eventually, I filled in the form and there's a question at the end and it says, do you have any questions? And I put, yes, when do I start? And whoever's reading this, probably Hannah, um, must have finally got the message because there's a queue. And the problem is also that I know from my own little volunteer group, there's a price to put the work together, to manage the volunteers before you get the work back. So a huge number of volunteers could absolutely swamp an organization the size of Bellingcat. So I understand it, but I was frustrated because I didn't understand any of that then. And finally, um, I, I got accepted. And I particularly wanted to work on Ukraine. And I'd missed that. And I started on another project, which is about driftbacks. And it didn't seem like anything that would make the news much. And within a few months of starting the work on driftbacks, geolocating um, pickups of people who were migrants at sea by usually the Turkish Coast Guard. Usually they had been uh, mistreated in some way, allegedly by other Coast Guards from other nations and possibly in the presence of um, organizations which were pan-European. And there were an awful lot of changes that came about very quickly in the structure of, of pan-European um, Coast Guard organizations that made me think, hang on a minute. And then, of course, there have been more terribly tragic incidents relating to the way that these boats are treated by Coast Guards. And now in my own country in Britain, there are some moves in Parliament to be far more aggressive in terms of the way migrants are treated. So suddenly, don't ever think when you do a project with Bellingcat that it's not relevant because that was the first one I ever did. And it turned out to be amazingly relevant. Then I did Tajikistan, which is the one that uh, this example on the website came from. And then I did do some Ukraine, uh, and then I got the Tech Fellowship. So there is an emerging path for people. There are various hiccups along the way. I think the part of the lesson is don't expect everything of Bellingcat. Look around. There's a whole community out there. If Bellingcat can't quite accommodate you straight away, then there's other places to look. There's training you can do. Um, but there is a path. So saw a newspaper article, read a book, did some training, and there's training that isn't paid. We did pay, but there's training that isn't paid. Uh, 
both sometimes from Bathingcat and from other places. And I must say the, the biggest training for me is the work of the Bellingcat tech team, as it appears, which I hadn't really appreciated. But for example, Logan Williams developed something which takes OpenStreetMap and allows you to search it with index tags. That probably doesn't mean much, but in practice, it meant that looking for border posts around the edge of Tajikistan, I'd found about eight in a full day. And I took Logan's tool, by the way, OpenStreetMap is what appears in the 2D window in PeakVisor. And Logan's tool delivered 88 posts on a map in five minutes. And I'm seeing tons of stuff like that. Uh, some of it blows my mind. I don't even get immediately how to use it. But um, seeing some of that is a fantastic training once you've got going. Uh, I hadn't appreciated quite how good it is. But the stuff that's coming out of Bellingcat Tech Team is an education for anybody at any level. Thanks so much for the little rundown there. Um, you've worked on some incredible investigations. Um, if you are listening to the talk, uh, remember that uh, we are finishing in the next seven minutes. So you have about seven minutes to put uh, questions in the chat. Um, so just place them in the chat and I'll make sure they go in front of Sophie within the time that we have. Uh, I can't see them, but um, I'm, I'm very happy to answer anything that's not particularly about P5 as well. No worries. Um, you quickly mentioned uh, your tech fellowship. What's, yeah. uh, what's next for you in terms of the Bellingcat tech fellowship? Have you got anything lined up? Are you going to work more with yeah. Pfizer? Um I'd love to learn a little bit more about what you plan to do next. I've got some interesting projects on the go, but the main one is when you do a tech fellowship, you get paid a stipend and you've agreed some deliverables. And it's very important that those happen. So it was a great relief to me to produce the article because that's one deliverable. But the rest of the, the majority of the rest of the deliverables are two webinars that will take place. They'll be free and they will be at the end of October probably the last week into October. And they will be firstly quite a big webinar, which is um, for anybody. And it's, it's from the start. And then the second one is in more detail. And it's more of a tutorial thing. So the first one will probably have like some quite short multiple choice type exercises, whereas the second one will have some industrial stuff you can really get your teeth into. Then I've got a little project which is uh, just within GAP, and that's a follow-up to Tajikistan because we've got new information now, and we're looking at the way that various things are, are happening culturally, including some that you can see from a satellite, which are which look like um, some sort of repression of uh, cultural repression. Uh, I'm also very interested in the way that collaborative projects work. It's really difficult. You have to take, you have to find the right piece of work for a lot of people to do. You have to know how to cut it up into little pieces, little jigsaw pieces that everyone can do. You have to have some general rules, but not too much about how to solve the problem. You have to keep them happy whilst they're doing the work. 
And then you have to get all those pieces back in and sew them all together, having checked them. So the tools that support that, we're so lucky to have Atlas. That's an incredible step forward and a brilliant tool. I can't quite believe that a bunch of guys from Stanford just said, well, you need this. So we built it. Here you are. That's just wonderful. Uh, huge respect to them. And also watching the Ukraine project. The people working on that particular, Timothy and Stephanie and JL, they aren't just doing Ukraine. They're doing an amazing job there. I, I need to get onto that as well because it's such a strain. Um, but they're also doing this fantastic job of developing Atmos with the developers. What I'm doing with Peakvisor, they're doing with Atmos. So it's beautiful. If, if you've seen that happen before professionally, then to see that happen in this way is very impressive. Uh, so yeah, lots going on. I think I probably will write something about how we collaborate, what tools support us like Google Earth Web, Atmos, those kinds of things. And, and really the reality of how difficult it is to manage a, a collaborative project. Amazing. I think uh, John Carlos has jumped on now to ask a question. And then we've got one more question in the chat as well, which I'll come after John Carlos. Uh, yes. Hi, uh, everybody. I've been listening the whole time. I'm, uh, um, I just wanted to um, commend you um, on, on, on this fantastic work. I, I almost teared up when you talked about your journey to here because I remember, um, you know, I, I just remember you when you were like a very, you know, new person to the field and you were, you know, kind of deferential sometimes. And now you've taken on this like real important leadership role like you've shown you've shown so much initiative uh so much care for the work so much passion um that you know i wanted to just begin by commending you i think this is just amazing this journey that you've been on and i think it's uh i hope it serves as an inspiration for lots of people who are listening to this and they're trying to get into this kind of work and so my question is around that um it, it may be that the the you know for you it seems like the start of this journey was that article that you read right like you sat down on, on the sofa you said and you read the article and you went huh that's really interesting i want to find out more about this thing that's called open source research in bellingcat so there may be some people listening right now who are in on that couch right now listening to this so i'm wondering if you could just if you could go back in time and and talk to the to to, to that person on that couch who had just read their article what would you tell them having gone through the journey up to this point so far? Have a think where you want this to sit in your life. And it's not always easy. And it's different across different volunteers. So some people find it very interesting. I'm obsessively interested in it, as you can probably tell. It's almost difficult if you have other work you need to do um, to, to fit this in. And I know quite a lot of people I work with um, who find the same thing. And, and one of the joys you don't see is the collaboration with people. So think where you want it to fit in your life. Do you want to try it out first? Are you sure you want this to be your career or do you want it to be your hobby? Um, it can be a hobby that would help your career in that it's a technical thing. Everybody wants stuff on their CV or something they can talk about in interview. Don't just necessarily run at it and think, this is definitely what I want to do because it sounds cool. Um, not everybody is Eric Toller. They're not going to, you know, break through this amazing stuff um, about who brought down a, a plane and stop a war or whatever. So think where it fits in your life and try it out. 
and don't expect a huge amount. Don't expect everything from one organization. Look around, find the stuff online. Bellingcat is in a fantastic position because it's actually one of Elliot's goals to spread the word. Um, not necessarily make any money out of that, just to spread the word that uh, these skills exist and to equip just about everybody with the ability to spot a little bit of a fake somewhere or at least know that it's possible to debunk it. So I think I would say just work out where you want this to, to fit in your life. To me, it wasn't just like I'm interested. It was, oh, God, I get this shining light, light bulb. Yeah, this guy's doing this. That's interesting. Uh, I'm, I'm going to help. It was absolutely, I am recruited now. I don't mean that I thought I'm going to go and work for this person for a minute. I thought this is something we should all be doing in our spare time, everybody, because I don't know about you. When you look at the newspapers and you get all of the news in, it can be terribly depressing. And what it makes you, me feel more than anything is powerless. This is awful. It's disgraceful. Yeah, we've said that. How are you going to change it? Well, I can't go and thump whoever it is. And I am actually am a good pistol shot, but I, I only shoot targets. So I can't go into war. It'd be very unpleasant if I did. So what can you do? And it's a bit pathetic to say, well, I just push back a little bit every day. But if people in open source research management organize the projects that are group projects very well, and that's a tall order, then everybody should be able to go home every night and just do a little bit to push back. And that was, that's my feeling about it, that if you feel powerless, okay, it's not amazing, but actually pull those little bits together. There's a Van, Van Gogh um, quote about what genius is, you know, it's lots and lots of little things put together. And that's what our Ukraine project is. Lots and lots of little things put together that makes the best blinking case for civilian harm that could uh, end up in the, the courts. Beautiful question, Giancarlo, and beautiful answer, Sophie. Um, I think that's also what we're trying to do with this Discord server as well with just people coming in here and trying to help each other out in the open source world, which is really cool. You don't have to be part of our volunteer project uh, like Sophie was to kind of get involved with open source research. Um, that's kind of what oh, we're trying yeah. to foster here, right? Can I, can I just say, I, I really should have said this before. Giancarlo gave me a huge amount of help. I mean, I look back and think of him explaining. When I look at specific things I know about, I think, oh, and I remember Giancarlo telling me that. Um, and I was very like Donkey and Shrek. Oh, pick me, pick me, hopping about um, because I had no option. I wasn't going to learn very quickly. I have a tech background, so that was okay. But I wasn't going to learn quickly without people helping me. And the amazing thing about the whole Discord setup was how many people gave their time to help me asking idiot questions. And if you look at my um, Discord profile, the logo is a little panda carrying a couple of Uzis, but underneath you write a, a byline or something. And my byline is a sort of code of various drinks and food and stuff. And what it actually stands for is what I owe every single person who helped me on, on Discord. I keep a small record and you won't be able to decipher it, but it's, it's drinks or a meal or something um, and, and just their initials. And it's very long. I can't fit it on anymore because of all the different people who've, who've given me a leg up 
and showed me stuff and given their time. And that's something that's been beautiful about the technical community. And it's, it's alive and well on Discord for sure. Beautiful. I know, um, I know we've got one question on Peak Visor. Um, I know we're over time, but I think uh, it's worth asking just so that we can make sure that everyone's questions been answered, if that's okay with you, Sophie. Oh, yeah. And I, I'm happy to answer them you know, later or if you bail me or anything else. Okay. So M4Ra asked, how would you check for landslides and other recent changes in the topography when comparing photos in Peak Visor models? Your difficulty with that is that you don't have peak visor over time the way that you have Google Earth over time. So peak visor will tell you where things were at whatever point um, the LIDAR was done or whatever point the open street map uh, dates from. So you can see the shape of things very well, better than almost anything. But over time is difficult, and you probably will end up doing what uh, we did in the, the case study, which is using lots of different tools together. So it, landslides are pretty difficult. If you're just looking from above, you can see, uh, can you see any edges? Can you see the edges of something? Like it, it shows up that you've got to the edge of the landslide. But what we don't have is time, which is difficult. And it's the big strength of uh, Google Earth Pro. Because mm. we, we can see something move. It's a bit like, you know, if you're relying on um, water, so you've got something swampy and there's some little island patterns sticking up. And you think, oh, great, mm. I can use that. Um, but unfortunately, mm. it changes with every rainfall. Yeah. So it can be a bit of a false friend. But you do have the outlines that you can see from satellite. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Tried it in Tajikistan. So you've got outlines, but you haven't got um, much else. And changing yeah. over time is really the, the bedrock strength of, of Google Earth Pro. So though you can try matching the edges as they, they appear to have moved, if there is anything like the edge of the earth and it doesn't show up brown against brown. But that's really tough. I wish I could help more. I'm sorry. Perhaps that's the next big ask of Peak Visor to induce time. Um, thank you so much, Sophie, for speaking today um, and giving such an incredible presentation and sharing your thoughts and feelings as well and your experience about working with Bellingcat and also getting involved in some of our projects, but also kind of working with Peak Visor. Um, it's been a fantastic talk. But thank you so much for your time today. Um, my pleasure. pleasure. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Stage Talk. If you'd like to catch a Stage Talk live where you can ask the guest questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled Dawn by Newer Self and is courtesy of Artlist. <laughs>